Hello, I'm Luca De Giglio, and this is the Web3 in Travel podcast, where you can learn about crypto, blockchain, and how the new internet will change travel. After the horrible events of the last year, year and a half, uh, in which everything came down crumbling in, in crypto, it became apparent how we need to go back to the basics and how many people who came into this space forgot the basics or maybe never even learned them. And uh, what are the basics of blockchain? Of course, these are the usual things I talked about in the past, the decentralization and everything else. Uh, but how do we see this in a more clear way? Huh? What is really the basic backbone of decentralization? Well, these are nodes. So what is a node? Uh, a node is a computer. It's a computer which runs a blockchain. And it's called a node because it's not the only one computer running the blockchain. It's many computers uh, distributed, ideally, all over the planet and kept running by many different kind of people and companies. And why do we need this uh, diversity, this distribution? Well, let's let's do a small metaphor. So you have a garden um, in your village and this garden is providing food to everybody else. Um, you have only one garden. It's very big. It's very efficient because everything happens there. And, and then the garden gets flooded or it gets some uh, pests or some animals destroyed or some enemies destroyed and you lose everything. So what do you do to increase the resilience of, of this garden? Well, you could put fences, uh, put soldiers and whatever. There's many ways to defend the garden, but still um, the garden is one and something can happen to it, right? So what do you do? You divide it into a hundred gardens and you distribute it around, you know, maybe your village or your town, your city or country. Uh, if you make a hundred of them, it's much harder to destroy it because you have to destroy hundreds or a hundred exactly, right? Now, once you have a hundred gardens with the same total surface of the one garden you had before, what do you have? Well, you have the same amount of produce, maybe even less because there's all the transport and everything. There's higher cost, uh, higher complexity, and you have the big problem of, you know, coordinating all these gardens to say, okay, guys, like uh, on that day, we have to collect the tomatoes because we're going to sell them. Now, I don't want to go too deep into this metaphor because I'm going to get lost. But basically, you have, by dividing this, one garden in a hundred gardens, you have created a lot of problems. You made it harder to run it, but you get one thing in return, which the one garden cannot give you resilience. You are sleeping better at night, knowing that the chances that your garden gets destroyed in one single swoop are lower, not zero, nothing is zero, but much, much lower. So you pay a price for resilience. And imagine that, let's, let's get this to the political, you know, for the political perspective. So if you have one garden which provides all the food to everybody, let's go to the 
country metaphor, not the village. So there's a country, right? Imagine your own country where all the food, everything is produced in one place close to the capital. Now, luckily, nature by itself is the most decentralized thing we can have. So this is not actually happening in, in general. You need to go around the whole country. But imagine that this happens, like the, the government becomes um, decides that for efficiency's sake, for control, so that people don't grow the wrong kind, wrong kind of vegetables, whatever, they decide to the, limit the, cre the, the, the produce in only one big place close to the capital. And let's say that this works perfectly well. You know, you get more food for less effort. So people can eat more, right? Let's, uh, let's even assume this. Now, what happens when a government, which is basically a certain number of people, a small group of people, has total control on what people eat? Well, you know, they get a lot of power. And what happens when few people get a lot of power? They tend to abuse it. Uh, this is how human the human mind software works. If you input too much power into a human mind, it, can, it goes in overdrive, it starts working differently it basically changes the software or basically the software reacts differently when it's got too much power and what they do is they abuse this power usually in uh, in the name of even more efficiency and when they are very very efficient well that's where normally they go they go astray and they start worse and whatever worse against the, their their users the citizens or worse against other other countries Anyway, we know what happens when too much power is, is influenced. That's why we have, you know, made these efforts to, to do democracy. Now, this is kind of happening already in, in the Western world because we didn't centralize completely the produce of food, but we have a very good proxy, which is money. So imagine that a few people have the power to create money out of nothing, uh, like literally nothing mm, you will say you may remember your parents uh, probably your parents say this to you as it, they said to me money doesn't grow on trees and i always thought that money doesn't grow on trees means money is hard to come by which is true for individuals money is hard to come by it doesn't grow on trees so i cannot buy all the toys you want what my parents didn't realize and there's a very good reason for that, I think, is that money doesn't grow on trees because growing stuff on trees is hard. Money is much easier to create. You would say, oh, yeah, yeah, because they can print it. They don't even print it. It's like 8% of euros is printed. The rest is just digital. Money literally gets created by clicking a few buttons on a computer, okay, from the central bank. Now, imagine if a few people have this power, what can happen, right? It means total control. Now, that's what Bitcoin tried to do. It said, we cannot have a few people producing all the money. We need to make money more organic. Um, around when I was born, money stopped being connected to gold. That's in 1971. So until money was connected to gold, Money indeed didn't grow on trees. It, it was actually mined from the ground. So you had to find new gold. And that, got go that gold would be represented as money. For 1971, 
as a temporary measure, which is going on, money is created out of thin air. Um, I won't go too much into monetary policy and stuff because it's not my core, but I won't explain notes today. So in the context of money, when people invented Bitcoin, they said, let's make money organic again. Let's make it hard to create money. Um, and they basically simulate mining stuff out of the ground with, with these machines, the, the mining uh, rigs. A mining rig is also a node. And so they made it in a way that there's there's a need of many of them and they can reach a consensus of how many Bitcoins exist and who owns them, in I mean, which address owns them. So in the context of nodes, um, mining rigs from Bitcoin were the first nodes in, in the cryptocurrency world because, well, Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency. So you had many people mining this thing all around the world, open to everybody, anybody could mine. And anybody could participate in this network at the at the lowest level, meaning very close to the core, meaning mining. Uh, that in time got more difficult. So we went from normal computers to GPUs, I think, basically these stronger, stronger machines. And then we went to these huge companies and used factories. Today, you cannot mine Bitcoin unless you are a mining company, which in a way centralizes it more because instead of having a million people with a laptop, you're going to have 1,000 people with big mining factories, right? But still, it's it's one of the most, or maybe the most resilient cryptocurrencies out there because the distribution is, is very high. But again, I'm going a bit too technical. Um, those were the first nodes. With proof of stake, which Ethereum is running now, the node doesn't do the same work. It doesn't calculate at very high speed numbers until they guess the right one to win the, the ETH. Um, it stakes the money. So the person stakes the money. And if they don't respect the rules and don't validate the right transactions, they lose the money. That's the concept. Still, the nodes are now smaller machines, basically. Uh, which are more affordable and more people can have. You don't need to be a big company. You can be a, just a solo staker at home. Now, I'm not going into what is better, proof of work or proof of stake. This is not a discussion and it's probably not for me. Uh, I don't know enough about this. M my position, since I, I mentioned this, is like, we'll see. It's really hard to tell what is better, what is more resilient. It depends also on the use case and the, the general situation. But anyway. Now, uh, and Ethereum and most blockchains are moving into this proof of stake, which means nodes are basically small computers which can sit on your desk. Maybe a way to visualize them is uh, one of those mini computers. They are square boxes, smaller than, than, a, than a desktop. They don't have a keyboard. They don't have a, um, a display. You connect with them with cable or Wi-Fi and you control them. And what they do is like they keep a copy of the blockchain so that this stays. The blockchain is, is there, uh, but they don't do calculations, so they don't uh, do too much work. Now, ideally, a blockchain has thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of them. The more, the better. So what is the situation today in terms of this kind of like distribution of nodes around the world. Well, I would say it's very far from ideal. 
there's not hundreds of thousands of Ethereum nodes or hundreds of thousands of companies mining Bitcoin. They are relatively few. And this is bad. Ethereum, if you go and check the website ethernodes.org, has about 6,000 nodes. Not 60,000, not 600,000. And most of them, the vast majority, is in Europe and North America. You got a bit in Asia, uh, you got quite a few in Singapore, but it's not really very well distributed. I don't see any in Africa, basically, uh, or at least they don't show them on this map. And South America, I doubt this is true. I, I think there are more because from what you see around, people have nodes a bit everywhere. But that's the situation, and it's not many. Now, the thing with blockchains is that they react to adversarial attacks so and what happened now with sbf made many people realize we need to get back the, the tokens in our wallets and they, they made us realize we need to go more serious on the centralization um now ethereum world crypto is going to be attacked more by for instance politicians and as they attack it it, it gets more resilient uh, more nodes will pop up, etc., etc. So I'm expecting a big increase in nodes in the in the next years. Um, I personally got a node, which I got a computer, a specific dedicated computer, and I'm learning this. That's why I decided to make this uh, this episode to give you an introduction from what I've learned so far, and and I'm gonna learn more in the future. Now, one funny thought experiment I had uh, a week ago was to say, what if the travel industry wants its own blockchain? Because we discussed this before, right? Do we use existing blockchains, existing layer twos? Uh, do we count on them or do we build our own? And if we build our own, how do we build it? And I talked about extensively with and about chain for travel, with the Camino blockchain, etc. But this idea popped to my mind, which is, I said it very clearly, that's a stupid idea and is not for this time. And who knows in the future, but still, it's an interesting thought experiment which helps us understand the dynamics of, of blockchains. Now, since I got this machine, right, and I'm running this machine now, I was thinking, I was trying to understand how, how hard it is, right? And it is always harder than they say, even if I, I got the easiest one, in a way. Um, and I wondered, what if every hotel in the world has a node? Right, so somebody creates a special machine, which a hotel can buy. It comes to the hotel. You just plug and play. You put your wallet address. You stake some tokens of this blockchain. So you buy the tokens, maybe included with the machine, and then you stake them, and then you earn rewards because you are actually keeping the blockchain, a new blockchain, secure. And I, I said very clearly, this is not some, it's not even an idea or a plan or whatever, but maybe in 10 years, who knows? Hotels don't even know uh, at the moment um, that blockchains, what blockchains are for, why it would be good to have a blockchain, etc. So not going to happen. But that would be a great way to decentralize a blockchain organically. Like instead of counting on node operators, which are, Technical people who want to run a node for various reasons, uh, mostly two reasons. One is I want to help the network being decentralized. Well, three reasons. Second reason, I want to connect to my node directly so I got privacy. Third reason, I want to make money. I want to stake these tokens and make money. Um, 
instead of relying on them, why don't we have our own? And I say hotels only because they are physical buildings. It's easy to, to visualize. It could be any travel company, of course. Um, that would be incredible. Imagine having, I don't know, a million hotels with a little note running somewhere. They have already a room with computers and stuff, right? Running software there, remotely managing, you know, they can ask their uh, technical departments or anybody, you know, very, very easy to run, basically. And just leave it there. And by putting in it, I don't know, $1,000 worth of, uh, of tokens, earning 5% per year on those tokens, and having the travel dedicated blockchain like this. I just found this interesting. There were some interesting comments about this on LinkedIn. Again, not a plan, not viable. Uh, I would never go to a hotel and tell them, put this machine and explain the whole thing. They have to get there by themselves. And when they're going to get there one day, maybe this is doable. But it's the first time I've heard, actually, I heard myself talking about this, but I've never heard anybody uh, proposing that. Like uh, industry-focused blockchains run by the industry itself. Chain for Travel, we know they, they do this, but they do it in a, a federated way. And the way I visualize that in hotels is like, completely open and permissionless, etc. And of course, this creates another problem because then how do you know it's a hotel? Anyway, I as I say this, I'm thinking maybe I said this before or I wrote it in LinkedIn. I hope I didn't say it in the podcast. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, that was like the, the interesting part of this idea is that we will have to find better ways to maintain blockchains in a decentralized way. Today, we are only counting on a limited number of, allow me, nerds who like this thing for ideological or financial reasons. We need people in a specific industry to understand that having a really decentralized blockchain is valuable and do something about that. And doing something about this could be as easy as simply going on a website, purchasing one of these machines for a thousand dollars or, you know, whatever. There's even cheaper, cheaper ways. Anyway, a thousand dollars, the machine gets there, it's got tokens in it already. Um, you, you plug it and there you go. You made the network more resilient and you are part of it and you're even making a bit of money in, as a stake. We are very far from this being even discussed so forget about it in in the real world but i hope it kind of gives you the idea of where we should go with blockchains we need much more decentralization now what have i learned from running this node i'm not even running the node yet i connected the ethereum blockchain and it's still downloading it's a terabyte now so a thousand gigabytes it's gonna take a week or something at least what I learned is that you can be a node in several different blockchains at the same time, that it gets uh, complicated at the modem, at the, so the router level. Uh, you start filling with ports and stuff like this, um, that this machine is making some noise, so you want to keep it not, not in your bedroom. And that is still too technical to go wild, to go like, you know, as easy as buying a mobile phone and start using it, or as easy as buying a smart a smart TV and kind of after making it work, watch it. It's still harder than that. 
and I purchased a ready-made one. And in theory, all I had to do was just plug and play. And no, because the ports were closed, I had to call my ISP, find out what kind of stuff I had in my house with their you know, closed router. And then turns out it was a fiber optic. They made it become a switch. And I started looking at this, getting all these acronyms I've never heard of, UPMP and port and port I've heard about. And I never managed ports because I never needed to. I finally made it run and I'm, I have this dashboard which is full of stuff I don't understand and I realized I have to study this thing. And as I study these things, I learn a lot. And that's when I really enjoy that. I know that whatever I'm reading is fundamental. So the ratio of you know effort and results is really, really high. And uh, yeah, so becoming a node operator allows me to kind of go one level lower than where I'd been before. The, the lowest level, by low, low level, I mean close to the core, right? Like if you have this ecosystem, which is a planet, and I go closer to the surface, then I go under the surface, blah, 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 and I go until the center of the core. Uh, the closest I've been so far has been on the programming side, so developing some smart contracts. This goes even deeper. And uh, what I find usually in terms of value is the perspective. It's like if you go lower, you change your perspective and you see the things differently. And your total view is more 360, it's more 3D, okay? So I just started this journey. I'm sure I'm gonna come back to this. And I just wanted to give you a, a small introduction for now. Now, how is this related to Web3 in travel? Well, it is really related because if you've listened to the last analysis I did in which one company is a DLTE, the other company is not clear where the blockchain is, it shows that the industry is, is going to accept whatever you tell them. You know, the, the wider industry, they've heard about blockchain, they maybe understand the theory about distributed networks, etc. But the, you can go to them today and say, I'm a blockchain company and don't even have a blockchain. They're not going to even ask you, right? Probably the same thing happens with venture capital, specific travel-related venture capital. They don't know. So I could probably launch a project and say, okay, this is a blockchain which allows you to do this, this, and that, and don't even have a blockchain for a while. And maybe if they ask, I could say, yeah, we have, you know, some white papers on how we're going to build it is not the right time, whatever, right? So the, the, the industry is really not sophisticated enough to deal with blockchains. But this is not something you can avoid. If you don't pay attention now, you will pay attention later when you realize this distributed company, which was supposed to become kind of a security layer, a trust layer. In fact, you're trusting the company itself. So I'm talking about nodes now because... Every time a company comes in the travel industry and tell us what they do, we have to be able not to only ask what blockchain you're using, but analyze the blockchain. And analyze blockchain is not easy, but at least, you know, is there 10 nodes or is there a thousand nodes? Oh, there's a thousand nodes. Great. Who they are? How do they get access? Is it permissionless? Uh, um, the nodes is the big question. Who are the nodes? Why are the nodes? Or what are the rules which allow people to be nodes? Uh, what is the consensus mechanism? Is it proof of stake? Is it proof of work? Is it some other proof of something? 
um, proof of hotel, <laughs> like just if you are a hotel, you can do it. Well, why not, right? Maybe we will come up with some weird things trying to decentralize. Uh, we haven't seen the, even the beginning of it, in my opinion, especially when we start verticalizing to specific industries. So yeah, understanding nodes, at least, you know, a bit deeper than just saying, yeah, nodes are computers running around, and, but just understanding that the number of nodes is important, but it's not enough. The number, okay, there's not a concept, the number of validators. You, you go and you say like Ethereum has 400,000 validators and you imagine the 400,000 people validating um, the blocks, which in fact is not that. So Ethereum has 400,000 validators of which maybe, I don't have the numbers in front of me, like 200,000 or 150,000 are managed by one company, which is Lido. I gave a need to Lido and Lido is doing validation for me. Uh, and a validator has 30 to eat, so it has a lot of them. Or, or maybe these validators are um, like no one person could have 10 validators. If you have 30 to eat, then you can have 10 validators. So you realize that validators doesn't mean number of people. Now, let's make it simpler. If every single validator, every single eat on stake is in the hands of one person, you don't have a blockchain, you have a database, right? If there's a million validators and each of them has 30 to eat, then you have a very, very decentralized blockchain. And we are somewhere in the middle between the two, basically. And it has to get more more decentralized uh, if it wants to resist to, to attacks. So understanding these concepts is going to be important for you if one day you want to invest in a travel-related blockchain. Uh, work with one of them, buy their products, you know, in any kind of interaction you're going to have with a web train travel company. If you know the questions to ask, then you can, first of all, avoid the scams or at least be able to evaluate the risk more correctly. Okay. So, I guess that's it for the notes. What can I say more? Because I, I, as I speak, I kind of am dragged into the technical details because that's what I'm reading in these days. Um, but this is not the right time for that, not the place. Um, in general, yeah, look, okay, maybe like this. When now it's a bear market, nobody cares about crypto anymore, crypto is dead, etc., etc. But sooner or later, you're going to be contacted by someone saying use this blockchain buy this token or uh, become part of the blockchain yourself or invest into this blockchain so maybe the first question to ask yourself or to ask them is okay show me the blockchain you're using uh okay is this blockchain perfect is it uh like generalist blockchain you're using ethereum cardano solana polygon whatever okay in that case you go and you look at the blockchain and then then you have a lot of data to understand the blockchain itself you know like block scanners like either scan etc if it's their own blockchain uh, then you can ask okay first question i would ask what is the consensus algorithm is it proof of work proof of stake or what else then how many nodes and you want the number of physical nodes how many computers are running this thing and then how many people are actually running this 
Okay, there's a thousand computers. How many people run this? One person, ten, thousand? These are the main questions you, you should ask. And the kind of answers you can get are different. Could be, no, no, we are DLT, decentralized ledger. So it's like a blockchain, but we have our own computers. We run the whole thing, kind of. I'm simplifying, of course. Or they can say, yeah, no, we have 20 nodes, but they are federated. It's permissioned, a bit like the BNB blockchain. So it's very efficient, only professional people, only companies. They are vetted before they get in. So very corporate feeling, etc. Then, okay, your attention has to shift from the blockchain itself to the people. Who are they and what are their interests and can they collude? Uh, can they maybe fight between each other? Is there one person which controls access to this? So that kind of analysis. Or they can go like, no, it's a blockchain. We made it and we have a thousand nodes or a hundred nodes. We just started. Okay, we just started. How do you plan to make this more decentralized, etc.? Now, you won't be able to, to give like a very precise analysis, but just by asking these questions, you already know if this thing is more on the centralized side or not. Again, centralized could be perfectly fine. I mean, we could decide to have 10 companies running 10 MySQL databases to reach a consensus. Why not? It depends on the use case. But at least being able to ask these questions and to understand that, it's important. Because that's maybe the point I was trying to get to and I couldn't. The, the incentive for anybody selling you and think, People are always selling you blockchains. When they sell you a blockchain, when they tell you we are a blockchain company, their incentive is to let you think this is the most decentralized thing in the world because decentralization is expensive and is, it gives you security. That's the incentive. So the blockchain salesman comes into your office and says, we have a blockchain which will allow you to do that and that. And they won't tell you what, how, you know, the details about the blockchain. If you don't ask, you're going to assume, well, this is as good as Ethereum, as good as Bitcoin. It's, I don't have to worry about the blockchain because it's decentralized. If you ask these questions and they start saying, yeah, no, it's federated. Yeah, no, it's a DLT. Yeah, it's a new blockchain, whatever. Then you, you, know, you have a much better idea of what you're dealing with. Again, I have to be clear about that. It depends on the use case and anything could be good, right? Of course, if they don't tell you things, and they let you assume things which are not true, it's a red flag. So by kind of going into nodes, I know it can get boring, but by trying to understand nodes, you will be able to avoid scams or be sold stuff, which is not what you think you're buying and understand the real projects, etc., etc. So bear with me. We went a bit technical with that. We're going to go probably back to this as I learn more about that. But learning about nodes is, uh, I think, a very, very precious skill for the future. All right, this is the end of today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. For more insights on Web3, follow me on Twitter at tripluca, T-R-I-P-L-U-C-A. And see you next time.